Hey everyone, this is Jonathan Capehart. Welcome to Cape Up. This week, Dr. Anthony Fauci is here. He's the nation's top infectious disease researcher, so there's no one better to talk to about the urgency of combating Zika. The key thing that's needed is money, but congressional fighting over funding has forced the health secretary to do something quite stunning. She had to take money using her transfer authority from cancer, diabetes, heart disease, and mental health. Actually, it's even worse than that. Also, Fauci is renowned for his life-saving research on HIV-AIDS, so you'll want to hear what he thinks about the possibility of an AIDS-free generation and the role PrEP plays in it. That's coming up right now. Dr. Fauci, thanks so much for being on Cape Up. Thanks for coming in. Good to be with you. So, Zika. Can you give a, a download on what is this disease and why does it seem like it came from out of nowhere and seemingly like the last two weeks? Well, it didn't come out of Relatively nowhere. speaking. I mean. uh, well, it didn't come out of nowhere because we've known about Zika as a virus since 1947 when it was discovered in the Zika forest of Uganda. The issue with Zika is that the first cases in humans weren't realized until... 1952 in Nigeria, and then it kind of went under the radar screen for decades. But the perfect storm for Zika came in 2015 when it reached Brazil. And the reason I say the perfect storm, because Brazil is a very large country with a lot of people, a diverse population, some considerable pockets of poverty, uh, and copious mosquitoes that are capable of transmitting in a population that prior to 2015 had absolutely no experience at all with Zika. Namely, they had an entirely vulnerable population. Mm. There was no background immunity there. It was a, a population that was highly susceptible. Also, Brazil had the situation where they have a healthcare system that was good enough to recognize interesting aspects. And that's when physicians started to notice the dramatic increase in microcephaly, and then they started to notice other types of issues, sexual transmission, um, Guillain-Barre, uh, which is a complication that we see with some viral diseases, a neurological paralysis. It can go to that far, a neurological disease. So although it came out of nowhere, metaphorically, it really didn't come out of nowhere. Mm -hmm. It was there, and only when the circumstances were right did we fully realize the extent and the unusual aspects of it. How is it possible that uh, a disease like this can spring up and then disappear and then reappear in different different parts of the world? Is that because of air travel? Is that because of wind currents blowing no. mosquitoes over? How does that no, happen? Mosquitoes don't get blown far away. Mosquitoes <laughs> hang around about 500 feet from where they were actually born. They don't go much beyond that. It's when you introduce the virus into the population of mosquitoes. Mosquitoes don't move around. People move around. But what you mentioned about travel, it going and making its way across the Pacific was very much a travel-related issue. People traveled for pleasure, for sport, for a variety of other functions. And then when they finally landed in Brazil, that was the perfect setup to have an outbreak. And you said that was in 2015. So uh, last year. Right. 
So it took that long to get to Brazil. Well, it, it just stayed below the radar screen for decades and didn't even work its way across the Pacific. And one of the things you said that I thought was interesting is that Brazil's healthcare system is set up in such a way that they were able to see it relatively quickly. Well, Brazil is an interesting country. Uh, parts of Brazil and a lot of Brazil is a very well-developed country. They have some very good hospital systems. They have some very good physicians and scientists and epidemiologists. So when something like this happened, they could pick it up in a heartbeat. Whereas when you have certain countries in sub-Saharan Africa, they have so many other problems that they're looking at that something new isn't easily recognized. Mm -hmm. and, and then you mentioned microcephaly and guillain Right. So can you talk? start with microcephaly? Okay. What exactly is that? What does that look like? All right. Microcephaly is a condition that a fetus gets in utero during the developmental stage. What the virus does, it attacks neurological tissue as it's developing. So during the first several weeks of development of a fetus, there's an accelerated development of the nervous system, the brain and the spinal cord. So what happens as the brain develops, it pushes up the skull and the normal contour of a skull that you see in a normal baby mm -hmm. is due to the fact that the brain developed, pushed the skull up and made for that nice smooth contour. When the development of the brain is impeded or when it develops and then gets destroyed, you have a misshape of the skull. The skull doesn't develop normally, hence they call it micro or small cephaly, small skull. Now, that's what happens mostly in the early part of pregnancy, but we're finding out now, much to our dismay, that when a, when a mother, a pregnant woman, gets infected even in the second trimester or the third trimester, you can have direct destruction of the tissue of the brain of the baby. So babies that are born with microcephaly, how long do they live? Well, it, well microcephaly isn't a homogeneous condition. There's microcephaly that develops in utero and the baby never is born. It's a, a death in, in utero, mm -hmm. a stillborn. There are babies that are born and die very soon after birth because there's so much of the brain that's underdeveloped or destroyed that they never make it beyond the first few days to a week. But there are other situations where babies may be born with microcephaly and, and can live, and can live a life that is very, very difficult because very often they can't take care of themselves. They have visual abnormalities, intellectual abnormalities, developmental landmark abnormalities, and they need to be taken care of for the rest of their lives. There's also another aspect of, of Zika is that we often refer to as microcephaly as the tip of the iceberg. It is conceivable, and we've seen it already, so it's more than conceivable, it's actual that a baby can born looking relatively normal who gets infected in utero with Zika, but they have subtle abnormalities that are not manifested by a morphologically obvious shape of the head. They can have blindness, they can have hearing abnormalities, they have calcifications in the brain that lead to a variety of other problems that they might have. Wow, I, th these are all things that um, I didn't know, and I'm sure our listeners didn't know just how harrowing this is. Just microcephaly. Now, Guillain-Barre. Now, Guillain-Barre is a condition that is a neurological condition that is a post-infection syndrome. Namely, a people get certain types of infections. The one we have most experience with is influenza 
is a disease that has a certain percentage of what we call Guillain-Barre. And Guillain-Barre was named after the scientist who, who described it. It's a condition of the body reacting immunologically against their own peripheral nervous tissue. And it's, it's characterized by paralysis of the hands, the legs, and then the trunk to the point where in some individuals, not all, in some individuals, you can get paralysis of the respiratory muscles that allow you to breathe. And under those circumstances, you need access to an intensive care unit and respiratory assistance. Most people recover from Guillain-Barre. It's a chronic, it takes a while before they get all of their neurological function back. But some people go on and develop such serious conditions that you could actually die from it. But most people recover from it. So how can you protect yourself from Zika? Is that even possible? Right now, in the short term, the immediate term, the way you protect yourself is things that you can do personally and things that public health officials can do. Mosquito control is the critical issue for protecting at the population level, protecting people. And there are several ways to do that. You get rid of breeding places. They love to breed in small amounts of standing water. So you've got to clean up the environment. This is particularly difficult when you're in a semi-tropical region that's moist, that has a lot of rain, and that always has standing water. Then you can get rid of the larva and the adult mosquitoes by spraying. And you could spray either by backpack spraying, truck spraying, or aerial spraying. This is the thing that we've seen in Puerto, R- in Puerto Rico, and we're also seeing right now in Florida. There's a lot of pushback on some people about spraying because they're concerned about the toxicity of the insecticides and the larvicides. But that is really the only way to control mosquitoes. Now, the personal level, a person can protect themselves to the extent possible stay in air-conditioned rooms where you live or work. If you have screens on your doors and your windows, make sure they're in good repair. Even though it's warm, to the best of your capability, when you go outside, cover as much as your body as you can, and the part that's exposed, liberally use insect repellent, particularly insect repellent that contains DEET. Right now, that's the only way you can protect yourself. In the long run, protection is with a vaccine, which is what we're trying to do is develop as quickly as we possibly can a safe and effective vaccine. Mm-hmm. So with the, the people who are infected with, with Zika now, what's happening with them? What, um... So the recommendation is that if you... Are, know you are infected, like you have the symptoms or you have a diagnosis laboratory, or you come from an area in which it is possible that you were infected, namely an area that has active Zika transmission, when you get back to where you live, that you wear insect repellent to mm. protect your community from just what you're saying, a mosquito biting you who've been infected and then biting someone else. The issue that we have here in the continental United States relates to the large number of travel-related cases. We have about 3,000 travel-related cases that we know of in the United States. It's probably two or three or more times that number because 80% of the people who are infected have no symptoms. And when you have travel-related cases, for example, there are over 600 of them in Florida. So if you have a travel-related case and you have the right mosquitoes capable of transmitting it, 
you get what you're seeing now in Florida, namely local transmission, namely infection of people who've never left Florida and never left the continental United States get bit by a mosquito who bit someone who was infected someplace else, be it South America or Puerto Rico or what have you. That's how you get the now increasing number of local transmitted cases that we're seeing in the Miami area and Wynwood and South Beach and on, on Miami Beach and other areas in Florida. You've mentioned several times people who might have symptoms or don't have symptoms, then it, it occurred to me, what are the symptoms? Okay. In general, Zika is a relatively mild disease. As I mentioned, 80% of the people don't have symptoms. So right off the bat, you know, it's a relatively mild disease. Of the 20% who do have symptoms, it's a pretty classical complex of symptoms. It's a rash that's seen in the overwhelming majority of people, diffuse rash over the body, fever, joint and muscle aches and pains, and conjunctivitis or redness or an inflammation of the eyes. That's a rather classic presentation for Zika. So you're now trying to come up with a vaccine. Right. One of the things it takes to get that done is money. Right. And one of the things that Congress is debating is funding or emergency funding, but just funding to help you. Uh, how damaging would it be if the federal government, whose budget ends September 30th, doesn't do anything leave aside the budget, but doesn't do anything in terms of getting you the money you need right. to develop this vaccine. Well, I hope that that doesn't happen, but if it does, it would really be unconscionable because what we've had to do, both the NIH with the vaccine, but the CDC also doing the same thing with their infection control by mosquito control, is that we've had to take money from other accounts in order to start the work we've done. So we've been racing ahead with our vaccine work. First, we took money from other infections. We borrowed money from ourselves. From like malaria, Ebola. From a, well, from malaria and then TB. When we ran out of that money, we started tapping into the Ebola funds that we really should not be tapping into because we still need them to keep the lid on Ebola. When we ran out of that, the Secretary Burwell had to do something she really did not want to do. She had to take money using her transfer authority from cancer, diabetes, heart disease, and mental health and give it to us to be able to continue to prepare the sites for the vaccine trials that we will be performing. Hold on. Wait, wait, wait a minute. No, it's the truth. Right. So you've run out of money for TB and malaria. Then you went to Ebola, ran out of that money, right. and now Secretary Burwell, Secretary of Health and Human Services, is now tapping into money from cancer, heart disease, diabetes, and mental health. And that's as a result of no money from the Congress up to this point. So President Obama asked for $1.9 billion in February. And we had been hoping each week, each month, that we were going to get the emergency appropriation. We could not stop and do nothing in anticipation. So that's the reason why we had to do everything from borrowing money from ourselves to moving money from other accounts and other diseases. So right now, as we coming to the end of this 2016 fiscal year, we now have obligated all of the money that Secretary Burwell has redirected out of cancer, heart disease, mental health, et cetera. So now we're waiting for the 2017 appropriation. So if we start the new fiscal year in October 1 and don't have that money, 
uh, we're going to have to stop what we're doing. How does this fit into the larger story? Are we ready as a society, as humans, for more and more epidemics, pandemics that could be coming our way as a result of climate change, as a result of people traveling more? Where does this fit in? We have always had, throughout the history of mankind, emerging and re-emerging infections. We're having them now. Just look in the last few years. We've seen it even in the Americas, chikungunya, uh, dengue, uh, West Nile in 1999, and now Zika. Uh, we will always have emerging and re-emerging infectious diseases. We have the scientific capability to get better and better of responding, but what we do need when we need resources, and several of us have been talking about this, and I hope it does become a reality, is to have an emergency public health fund similar to an emergency hurricane or earthquake or FEMA-like fund so that when you need money to rapidly move in a direction to respond, although the appropriations process under most circumstances is a good process of checks and balances that works, in an emergency, you can't be held hostage to something that takes a long time and could get politically involved. That's why many of us are saying we should have an emergency public health fund that we could tap right away. And how much support is there for something like that? I mean, it makes sense, yeah, but a I'm lot hearing of more, make sense. I'm and- hearing more and more of it in the testimonies that we give before the Congress. I'm hearing from both sides of the aisle that that might actually be a pretty good idea. And a number of independent global health organizations have come out saying that they believe that this is not a bad idea at all and we should pursue it. Mm-hmm. So I'd like to get through, and I hope we will, get through this Zika issue, get control of the mosquitoes, get a safe and effective vaccine, and then when we do, realize that maybe for the next one, we need to be prepared by having those funds available. Mm-hmm. Now, you are renowned, world-renowned for your work and, and research on HIV-AIDS. Do you think we'll get to an AIDS-free generation? That's something yeah. that uh, Secretary Clinton has talked about. Lots of people are talking right. about. I think we will, and it's going to depend on if we implement the scientific advances that we have already made. And this is going to require a global level, political, social, uh, national, international will and commitment. Uh, When I say we have the tools, we have extraordinarily effective treatments. We know that when you treat someone, you not only save their lives, you prevent them from infecting others to the tune of a 96% decrease in transmissibility. We know that pre-exposure prophylaxis works for people at high risk of infection. If we could get that aggressively implemented through programs like PEPFAR, like the Global Fund, and even domestically here in the United States to do what they're doing in San Francisco, where they're very aggressively doing a rapid approach to getting virtually everybody on therapy immediately, if we really put our foot on the accelerator on that, I do believe that within a reasonable period of time, we can have an AIDS-free generation, which means not that you're going to eradicate HIV-AIDS. I don't think that's going to happen. But we can end the pandemic as we know of it today. You know, if you look at in the United States, we have forty to 50,000 new infections each year in the United States. That is unconscionable that after all these years, we still have that. If we can get that down 
to one or 2,000 or even less. You won't end it because there'll still be HIV mm-hmm. AIDS, but you will end the pandemic as you know it today. It will be a different thing. It'll be much, much, much less of a public health threat. Is access to health care the issue here in terms of preventing these new infections, right. which are really happening in the American South. I'm speaking, thinking of the United States yes. in particular, yeah. but in the American South, access to health care. Yeah. Access to health care is absolutely one of the barriers to getting a uniformly AIDS-diminished or AIDS-free generation. The availability of health care more and more through the affordable uh, uh, health care system, uh, to me, that is going a long way if you get more people into care. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you look at the people who are infecting others, it's really interesting statistic. So 12% of the people in the United States who are infected with HIV, 12% of them, don't know that they're infected. 30% of all the new infections come from a person who doesn't know they're infected, so they're inadvertently affecting somebody else. But the real critical figure is that 61% of the people who are getting infected, are getting infected from people who are infected, know they're infected, but they're not in a good medical care Mm -hmm. system. So if you could test everybody and find out everybody who's infected and get them into a health care system to get them on therapy and suppress their virus so that they don't uh, transmit to others, theoretically and hopefully practically, you could decrease the infection rate in the United States by over 90%. So wow. it really is a healthcare delivery system. Wow. Um, you mentioned PrEP, uh, or you called it pre... Pre-exposure prophylaxis, pre-exposure, or PrEP. Or PrEP, that's, that's what it stands for. Uh, and, and it's happening in San, in San Francisco. There's a little bit of, if I'm reading my gay press right, a little bit of controversy over PrEP and what's happening in San Francisco, but you think what's happening in San Francisco is done uh, aggressively, that it, it's beneficial. It is, because what, what they do in San Francisco is that there are multiple um, checkpoints from the time you get infected to the time you're on therapy to the point of suppressing your viral load to below detectable level that are vulnerable. And by vulnerable, I mean you can go in and not even know you're infected. That's one point. You get tested and you know you're infected, but you never come back for care. Or you come back for care, you get a prescription, but you never fill it. Or you fill it, you start taking your medication, but you don't completely take it every day. What they're pushing for in San Francisco and other places, Mm -hmm. New York is trying that right now, is that they reach out into the community and they find people who might be at risk they test them right there while they're waiting for the result of the test. And if they're positive, they give them a plastic bag of 30 days worth of antiretrovirals. They get a cell phone number or give them a cell phone and say, you come back in 30 days to refill your prescription. And if you don't, we're going to call you up on your cell phone. The amount of people who get under the umbrella of care then exponentially increases. And that's the reason why they're seeing a rather significant drop mm in incidents in San Francisco. Because of your work on, on HIV AIDS, you were awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom. Is that 2008? Yes. President George, George W. Bush. Bush. Right. Proudest moment of your life? Uh, certainly. I, 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 I can't say there was never a, a more proud moment it, because uh, he gave it to me for 
not only the work that I had done in HIV and helping develop the drug regimens through the institute that I direct, but also because I was one of the principal architects of the PEPFAR program, the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief, in which President Bush sent me to Africa to figure out, is there a way that we can have a transforming effect on HIV in the developing world, particularly Southern Africa, in prevention, treatment, and care? And I spent several months going back and forth, putting together what now turns out to be the PEPFAR program, which is responsible for saving millions and millions and millions of lives. And that's one of the things that President Bush should be rightfully extremely mm -hmm. proud of. All Americans should be proud of that the United States of America has had that positive impact on a developing part of the world. To, to your mind, what's another proud moment for you? One that just, when you think back on it now, just makes you smile from ear to ear. Well, apart from personal things, like family things, which I'll mm -hmm. put aside. I mean, that's, I mean, obviously, I'm, I'm, I'm very yeah. proud of my family. My, I have three daughters, uh, all in their 20s, and I'm very proud of them. They're wonderful uh, children. I have a great... Uh, none living at home? None living at home, unfortunately. <laughs> One always says it's great when you're an empty nest so you could go back and have a lot of fun. It's the, the worst thing that can happen to you is to, <laughs> is to not have them uh, with you in the, in the house. So I'm very, very proud of my family, my wife, uh, Christine, who's wonderful. So that's great. Um, the thing that I'm also proud of from a, from a professional standpoint is I've been the director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases since 1984 for almost 32 years. And what, what we did in the beginning of the HIV-AIDS pandemic uh, in getting the activists involved in reaching out to the community and changing the way we do research to make it more user-friendly for the people who are afflicted, I, I think is one of the things that I look back on that I feel very good about. You know, you talked so eloquently about your work. Folks who don't know about your work, I, I implore you to just Google Tony Fauci, uh, HIV AIDS, and you can see um, the incredible work that he did that earned him, rightfully so, the, the highest civilian honor the president can bestow upon a citizen of the United States. And here's another little piece of trivia you might not know. There was a 2016, this year, analysis of Google Scholar citations, and Dr. Anthony Fauci was ranked the 18th most highly cited researcher of all time. That's that's pretty badass, Dr. Fauci. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thank what, you. That's all you got? <laughs> yeah, thank you. <laughs> It's great. Great for you to be here. Dr. Tony Fauci, thank you so much for coming in. My pleasure. Real pleasure to be with you. 